Welcome to episode 13 of the RSA Resident and Student Podcast Series, a production of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. RSA is an accessible, collaborative organization that fosters innovation, education, and advocacy for residents and students in emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Amy Ho, resident at University of Chicago and former vice president of RSA, speaks with Dr. Leslie Zun, former AAEM board member, system chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine in the Sinai Health System in Chicago, and chairman and professor of the Department of Emergency Medicine and a secondary appointment in the Department of Psychiatry at the Rosalind Franklin University of Medicine and Science Chicago Medical School. Today, Dr. Ho and Dr. Zun will discuss psychiatry in the emergency department. Hi, and thank you for listening to our podcast. My name is Amy Ho. I'm a third-year emergency resident at University of Chicago and also the vice president of RSA. I am very lucky to be here right now with Dr. Les Zun, who's on the board of AAEM and wears several titles professionally. He is the professor and chair of emergency medicine at Chicago Medical School, the system chair of emergency medicine at Sinai Health System, and also the president of the American Association of Emergency Psychiatry. So we are very pleased to have you with us here. It's almost like having three or four different people. You know, and I I think I have a title at University of Chicago, too. I just can't remember which one that is. I know. They start to just fall off at the end because there's so many. We are very excited to talk about psychiatry in the ED. So we were talking a little bit right before we started recording. I rotate at Mount Sinai as part of my residency, and the craziest people come in there. So I am really curious, what is your interest in psych and ED? Usually people hate it, and they're just rattling through the S-I-H-I-A-V-H and then call crisis. (laughs) Well, you know, I'm not exactly sure how I got focused on this, but I will say that When I was a resident, I had the research director of the department said to me, find one area that you're interested in and excel in that. And for some reason, I gravitated towards behavioral emergencies. When I was a resident, I did a study about mental status evaluation done by emergency physicians. And it's kind of snowballed in the fact that there's very few other people that are investigating it, interested in it, to research in that area, write in that, re- in that area. But the one thing for residents to remember is pick an area they really enjoy and focus on that one area. It's too easy in emergency medicine <laughs> to get involved in all different studies and interests. And if you pick one you really like and not a lot of other people are doing it, that's a great niche to have. And so I found it fortuitously. And I I do enjoy taking care of those patients, believe it or not, because I'm always curious to know, like, what's their psychiatric diagnosis? Do they have a medical mimic? Do they have other issues that need to be addressed? Maybe it's just my interest in serving that underserved ED population that most other people don't want to serve, but I'm happy to. So give me all your psych patients, and and I'll give you all the other ones. (laughs) It's like, watch out, or else you're going to find your shifts suddenly changing. (laughs) That is awesome, because they are a population that is very underserved, has a lot of comorbid conditions, and we're so quick to write them off as just a schizophrenic or just a bipolar. And I guess kind of in that strain, what do you think are some of the most common pitfalls in treating psych in the ED? There's probably a handful of ones that I commonly see. 
the first one is for us to say, oh, that's just a psych patient, mm -hmm. you know. And I remember when I was resident, the attending would look through the window of the, the door where the psych patient is, and if they were breathing, he would say, okay, they're fine, call, call uh, <laughs> psychiatry. <cleared>. Yeah, they're <laughs> medically cleared. I don't think we can do that anymore. I think that we really need to determine actually two things. We need to know, one, if they're having a medical problem that's causing their psychiatric complaint today, and you'd be surprised. And the second thing is you're right on when you say psychiatric patients have a lot of comorbidities. So if we actually look at those numbers, about 50% of psychiatric patients have a chronic m medical illness as well, and it takes the form of diabetes, high blood pressure, and asthma primarily. And what you see is that if they are not properly treated for their psychiatric condition or their medical condition, their mortality and morbidity goes up significantly of patients that just have asthma or just have schizophrenia. If they have both, their, their risk for morbidity and mortality is huge. The other thing I didn't even mention, and I'm sure we're going to get to substance <laughs> use disorder, is that psych patients have a, a large percentage of them have substance use disorder, and it depends on what study you read, somewhere between 20 and 80 percent of chronic mentally ill have a substance use disorder. Now, is that self-treatment with drugs and alcohol, or do they just have another addiction and that's just one of their other medical illnesses? So Unfortunately, in emergency medicine, we have to be able to figure out what's today's problem. So is today's problem a medical problem, a psychiatric problem, or substance use disorder and related issues with that? And it's hard sometimes to sort out one from the other, especially when we see them for such a short time. Mm -hmm. I'll just digress a little bit. So that kind of leads into, well, how can you figure out which one it is when they come in and they're, they've been drinking or doing drugs and they're hallucinating and they're a acting goofy and... They have diabetes, so yeah, you got to do some assessment of their glucose. You need to let them sober up or have the effect of the drug be taken away so that you can really assess what the baseline is because it's hard sometimes for us. And unfortunately, that means some of those patients have to sit in the ED until they're clinically sober. Mm -hmm. And I guess because most places have some kind of medical workup protocol for psych with what labs need to be done that draw a broad enough neck that you can suss some things out from it. And same thing for physical. You can get some things from a physical exam. But do you have any like tips or tricks for what to try to get out of a history if you can that will help you look for more medical things? Well, okay. So let's talk about who needs testing mm -hmm. and who doesn't. And how do we make that assessment of, do they have a medical problem today? So if they have a medical problem, we use good history, physical exam, mental status testing, and we can talk a little bit about that. And some will need testing, some won't. The chronic mentally ill that are presenting today with the same complaint that they always have from their mental illness, and their vitals are normal and their exam's normal, they don't need any labs at all. The evidence definitely supports no labs. New onset psychiatric illness they have a medical problem that you're going to work up. They're on meds that you can get levels like lithium mm -hmm. to know if they're lithium toxic or not. Then labs are indicated and it's appropriate. And this issue about doing drug testing and alcohol testing to every psych patient that walks in the door, again, the evidence does not support routine use of drug and alcohol testing. In the emergency department, there's one indication to do drug or alcohol testing on patients and that is altered mental status with an unknown etiology. If the patient comes in hallucinating and they drank a beer or two or three last night, 
and they're clinically sober, why do we need to get drug and alcohol levels? And the studies actually support the fact that if the patient says it, that there's a high sensitivity and specificity that they really did do it or didn't do it. So we don't need to get testing to delay the care and to add you know, expense to that patient's bill. It seems like so many hospitals, if they have a psychiatric complaint, automatically order a battery of tests. Where did that trend come from? Well, that's a great question. And we think that came from inpatient psychiatrists who are nervous to get a medical patient Mm -hmm. or a patient that they're concerned are going to be withdrawing from drugs or alcohol. So we have actually set up in the state of Illinois, you may have seen the medical clearance protocol Mm -hmm. that we use. It's five or six questions, and it helps you determine whether the patients need labs or not. And there's some history about how it was used or misused in Illinois, but it is a good starting point for determining if a patient needs lab tests or not. There are other tools out there. There was one developed and and published by Bob McNamara in uh, Philadelphia that's a little more extensive than the one that we did, but that is a great starting point. And so your question about, you know, where did this all come from that we need to do all this routine testing? Really, what we need to do is sit down with our colleagues, our consultants, the psychiatrists, and figure out what's appropriate, what's evidence-based, what do they really need. So, and I'll give you some, for instance, when they come to Sinai, we have an agreement that if they don't meet any of those criteria, they don't need any labs, and they'll get a bed. If they're going to a state facility, it's different. State, the state facility can only get lab testing once a week, so we do it more as a courtesy for them. But in exchange, they were supposed to not ask for other inappropriate or excessive testing and consultations and those kind of things. That didn't exactly happen for some (laughs) uh, issues that I actually mentioned before, this uh, um, uncomfortable feeling from psychiatrists that they need to know everything about the patient. They need a complete workup before they see them in their clinic. We're fortunate in Sinai that the psychiatrists are, yeah, I can handle that. Uh, it's not a problem. I'll, if, if they're having a, uh, a diabetic reaction, I can call an internist to see him. I know what to do. So uh, it's unfortunate that this has perseverated throughout emergency departments across the country. Yeah, and that explanation is certainly very revealing for how I probably now do things backwards <laughs> in my own care of psychiatric patients with the clearance. And for our listeners, this Illinois checklist is actually Googleable and it's broadly available if they want to take a look at it uh, to just look for uh, Illinois psychiatric medical clearance and they'll be able to find the one page form that goes along with that. And, and I, I guess because we've talked a little bit about the medical workups, it's a great time to ask, what is your initial approach to a psychiatric chief and complaint when you see it in the ED? And then also with that, it, does anything change if it's a pediatric complaint? Well, some, some good questions. So you know, I approach the patient like I'd approach any other patient. I try to get a history from them. I'll do a physical exam. I will do some limited mental status testing. And by the way, if they know where they are at and they know what day it is, it's, that's not sufficient mental status testing. <laughs> we need to ask them if they're having hallucinations, if they want to hurt themselves or anyone else. We need to ask them about their insight to and judgment because if we think we might send them home, we need to know if they have decent judgment. We need to get some assessment of their cognitive abilities. So I'll do that assessment. And then based on those things, I will determine in the ED if I need to get lab testing or anything, any additional information. Same like a medical patient. You know, I'm going to look up their medical records to see if they've had this problem before and how it was treated, 
I'll contact their psychiatrist if I could reach the psychiatrist. <laughs> or if they have one. Right, uh, or clinic, and it's not in the middle of the night, and I'll try to reach them and get collateral information. I think the only real difference with psych patients over medical patients is many times you need collateral information. You need to talk to their family. What's their behavior been like at home? Why did you bring them today? Why did you call the police or whoever brought them in? Um, because if the patient's not giving you that information, then you need to ascertain that information somewhere. And collateral information like that is probably more important than talking to a medical patient's primary care doc when it's unrelated to their hyper, chronic hypertension or diabetes, the complaint today. Now, when we talk pediatrics, there's not a lot of difference. Actually, again, if you look at the evidence out there in the studies, there are a few studies looking at doing labs on kids that come in with psychiatric complaints, and the same scenario. It really is not helpful. It's pretty much a waste of time and waste of money, and you're chasing things. I think the only difference with kids is the collateral and family situation is so much more important. You know, what's going on in school? What's going on at home? What behavior is being observed? What are the concerns? Those things, I think, are much more uh, important. And what I really loved about even how you opened your answer to my question is that you treat a psych patient like you would any other patient or like any medical patient. And I think that's not so widely understood because there's so many biases from physicians against psych patients. How do you think that those biases affect their care? And then what can we do to try to address and mitigate those sort of biases? You've hit on a really important point. Because if you look at the studies, the bias we bring to patients, especially psychiatric patients, even more so suicidal patients, actually makes their condition worse. And there's studies to back up the fact that, one, we have bad attitudes about psych patients, and two, it actually increases their morbidity and mortality based on our biases, which is quite unfortunate. So how do we deal with that? I think it all stems from education and training. You know, if we were more comfortable and we got more training in behavioral emergencies, I think we'd be much more comfortable with that and not bring biases. We can understand what happens to the people, these people. We can understand a little more about the pathophysiology. So I want to talk a little bit more about the education process because if you look at all the residencies across the country, there's no requirement for emergency psychiatric care. Now, there are some standards that you have to evaluate mental health patients and suicidal patients and those kind of things, but how many residencies out there actually have a rotation on psychiatry or emergency psychiatry or on, in their consultation liaison service? So why, why do we have rotations and everything else and we don't have an in psychi emergency psychiatry? I'm going to take this one or two steps farther if yeah. you don't mind. So if you look at the number of patients seen in the emergency department, there was a recent study in MMWR that said 9.3% of, the, of the, all the ED patients that come in have a psychiatric complaint. We at Sinai did a study of undiagnosed mental illness in adults using a, a tool called the Mini International. And we found that 45% of the adults and 40% of the kids had undiagnosed mental illness, at least they screened in, in the Sinai community. So if you take the 9.3% and the 45% that we found in our study, over 50% of patients who come into the emergency department either have a psychiatric complaint or a psychiatric overlie to their presentation. 
So why wouldn't we have a required training in psychiatric emergencies? So there are options to get that training. I'm going to mention a couple things. So as president of the American Association for Emergency Psychiatry, we have a yearly meeting on behavioral emergencies. And in that meeting, we spend two days just talking about behavioral emergencies. There's a scientific session. So if anybody's doing some studies related, we're thrilled. And everybody gets a textbook. I wrote a textbook on behavioral emergencies for the emergency physician. And so that's one avenue to get that education and experience. The second is that I'm part of, or actually AEP and AM is part of the Coalition for Psychiatric Emergencies. And I chaired the education committee, and we developed topics that emergency docs need concerning psychiatry, emergency psychiatry, and medical topics that psychiatrists need. And we're now going through the process of developing uh, coursework in that area. And so I think in the next few months, we'll probably have a course, a day and a half course about how to deal with psychiatric emergencies that will help us feel more comfortable and have more experience and do better with those patients because there is such disparity for psych patients. I mean, if you look at, we have a code, we have a code trauma, mm-hmm. we have a code stroke, we have a code chest pain or code STEMI. Do we have a code psych? No. Why wouldn't we have one? Aren't they having an emergency when they come in? Can't some of these psychiatric disorders actually kill people? Yeah. (laughs) So why don't we have that kind of focus? Why is that bias still persisting in emergency medicine? I'm not sure I understand, and I don't think it's the right thing. I really think we need to to do more and feel more comfortable taking care of those people, which leads to my next comment since I'm going to stand on my soapbox. In emergency medicine, we are comfortable rewriting, renewing uh, prescriptions patients have for their asthma, their diabetes, their nitro, whatever it is, their antiarrhythmics. But no, we can't write for any psych meds while they're in the ED, even ones they'd been on chronically, to give them what they've been taking before. Maybe they stopped taking them. Why? Are those psych meds any more dangerous than the antiarrhythmics we give or the anticoagulants we renew or some of the antibiotics or anything, a TPA? Why are we so resistant to... They come in, they chronically been on some uh, antipsychotic, and they quit taking it a week ago. Why wouldn't we give it to them while they're in the ED? That might shorten their stay, and maybe they'll actually feel better. I'm totally with you, because it is a medical diagnosis, even though it's mental health, and I think that is part of the stigma that the psychiatric world is actually doing a good job changing. And I, I think kind of while we're talking about issues that have this bias that doesn't make much sense in mental health. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how to address substance abuse in the ER, because we often feel very much like these are long-term resource-heavy issues to address from the ED. And I feel like emergency physicians usually don't feel like they have much recourse unless to detox them for alcohol or benzos or to, you know, MTF and metabolize the freedom. I really think we should be doing more in the ED. I think that what the studies have shown is that ESPORT, you know, that brief intervention and referral programs in the emergency department are valuable and do help for some patients, not all patients. I think that's one thing we can do for these patients, whether they have mental health problems or just substance use disorder, because they can have a dual diagnosis or just substance use disorder. I think the, the second thing we need to do is 
we might consider some treatment in the ED. Um, in fact, I have just gotten my waiver for Suboxone, so we are going to plan a, a collaboration with some of our uh, federally qualified health centers that are close to the sinus system where we'll, in the ED, start their initiation of Suboxone and then send them to the clinic. That's a rather select group of patients, but at least we could do something. And the third thing we can do is, and what we've done at Sinai is everybody gets referrals for substance use disorder, alcohol, AA, you know, whether you have that problem or not, you probably know someone that could use that referral. So we give the list of services in the community to everybody that comes in and gets discharged. I, I really think that, again, the day has come where we just, you know, let them sober up and send them home. I, I don't think that's adequate. I think at least we need to talk to them about their drinking problem. We need to counsel them. We need to properly refer them. Yeah, some of those patients will need medical detox, and we should get them into medical detox. You know, if we can send them to some halfway house or other outpatient care for um, substance use patients, even better. But in various communities, it's somewhat limited, which, again, is really unfortunate. Although I will say that one of the benefits to there was a, a bill, uh, a parity, a parity bill, where if you provide medical services, you have to provide the same level of psychiatric and substance use treatment uh, coverage. So that was a recent, no, not that recent. That's a law that's on the federal law that's on the books, so they have to provide it if they provide other things, which is, I think, going to help a lot. So what would your advice be to residents or just people early in their training that will be listening to this podcast? And what's the global picture for how what we should be doing with psych emergencies as a specialty and also as individual clinicians? I think what we're going to be seeing is the same thing we saw with other medical problems in emergency medicine. So what's the analogy? The analogy is, well, we used to, before we gave TPA for acute MI, had to have the cardiologist come down and approve it, right? And the same was true for strokes. The neurologist had to come down and approve the TPA before we gave TPA. I think that whether we like it or not, the market forces are pushing us into doing more of a psych evaluation. Now, we're going to actually have to be making the determination of, does this patient need to be admitted or not? Do they need to be on their meds or not? Do they need other therapies? And I think that reliance on the psychiatrist or psychiatric service to make disposition and treatment decisions, I think, is going to go by the wayside like TPA and stroke and acute MI. I think we're going to be forced, whether we like it or not, to treat these patients to properly evaluate them. I think some emergency physicians think that all I have to do is medical clearance and then I'm done. I don't think so, especially if you work in a place that has limited psychiatric resources and you can't get a psychiatrist or you don't have telepsychiatry available, then you're it. You're going to be held liable for whatever decision is made for that patient by a mental health worker or a social worker or anyone else. And we're going to have to, whether we like it or not, are going to have to do a good psych eval and make those decisions just like we make for any other patient. Yeah, and for you know the big house of emergency medicine, as healthcare is changing, we're becoming, uh, we've always been a catch-all for all patients, but we do do some primary care from the ER, and this is an incredibly important part of that, too. And you've identified education gap and certainly just biases and how we're trained. 
on psychiatry that are very revealing, I think, into how we also end up having biases against psych patients. I want to thank you again for your time and also for this passion on psychiatric emergencies because it is one that is very, very underserved and it really shouldn't be because you're absolutely right when you started and said these patients need us um, just like our medical patients need us too. Yeah, it's it's really an unfortunate that there's a real disparity in emergency medicine between, me- and, you know, there's such glory and thrill of taking care of the trauma or the stroke or the chest pain and there doesn't seem to be that same glory in taking care of the mental health patient. But you know what? Not only are their numbers huge, but they really need us as much, if not more, than the other patients. And I really do think that we need to rethink how we assess and and treat these patients. And I I think that we're going to have to come to terms with they're like any other patient. We have to treat them like any other patient. We have to you know, have the appropriate education and training and comfort level and not bring our biases to the table and do those, those kind of things when they come in the door. We're actually looking at starting treatment for the psych patient at triage. We're going to be doing a study pretty soon giving um, Ativan to psychiatric patients when they come in the door who have some level of agitation. Oh, I didn't even talk about agitation, but oh. thank you for asking. Yeah, me. let's uh, go to that. That's uh, a, I'm sure that's a great can of worms, but what, what, do tell us more. So I think it's well, a, so here's the problem subject. with agitation. We tend to treat patients with agitation all the same way. We don't assess their level of agitation. We give them all the same meds, whether their agitation is related to drugs and alcohol, intoxication or withdrawal, psychiatric problems, even just a crisis. They're having a bad day. They had a a conflict with somebody else. So what my specialty organization recommends is we should do a couple things different for agitation than we're currently doing. So one is we should do some assessment of their agitation. And if the last time you were at Sinai or the next time you're at Sinai, make sure you go on the medical side and see a psych patient because you can't order any psychoactive meds without putting down a, a agitation scale for that patient. And it helps guide you as to whether they need oral or I am, and gives you some medication choices. Not everybody should be getting the same drug. So, you know, if they're alcohol withdrawal, of course, you're going to give them benzos. If they're on meth, you might give them an atypical antipsychotic. If they're kids, you'll give an atypical antipsychotic. So really, we should be, like any other disease process, we should figure out what the most likely etiology of their symptoms, i.e. their agitation, and treat it accordingly. Not the same thing for every patient. And we should be assessing the level of agitation. There's lots of tools out there. So getting back to that study we're going to do in triage, we're going to assess their level of agitation. If they have a high level of agitation, then we will give them some Ativan and triage. Just think how many get more agitated while they're sitting in the waiting room in all that chaos. And how many patients that don't have psych diagnoses get agitated yeah, sitting in the waiting room. They could probably use the Ativan too <laughs> out there. And actually, we did a study, and it's, I only have some preliminary data right now, but we know that a couple of things. When the patients present to triage who have psychiatric complaints, one is they have psychic pain, significant psychic pain, and the second thing is they're feeling agitated but not acting on their agitation. So unfortunately, the agitation, most of the agitation scales are all observed behaviors, you know, what they're doing. Are they jumping up and down? Are they you know, talking a lot, are they being aggressive? But if you actually ask the patient, do you feel agitated? A lot of them feel agitated before they even get to that point of 
acting out. So if we can actually assess and treat them at triage, we're going to be preventing that progression and preventing that concern about uh, they're going to hurt somebody else, they're going to hurt themselves. So we really need to rethink the whole treatment plan. That yeah, we have and for it, these it sounds like instead of changing it to reactive of they're flailing all over, so let's give them five of Haldol and two of Ativan and put them down, it's, you know, how can we give them early interventions so that we can better care for them and keep things safe and more pleasant for everyone? We give aspirin to everybody that ever says <laughs> they have chest pain before we even get an X-ray and an EKG sometimes. I mean, they get it out in the field. Mm -hmm. Why shouldn't we be giving a fairly benign drug to patients? You know, there's, only, there's one exception. You know, you don't want to give it to somebody that has delirium. But usually you have a pretty good idea if, they, if their consciousness is going in and out. Outside of that, there's very little problem with giving a small dose of Ativan. I absolutely agree. And I think these are all things to think about for hopefully the future and upcoming growing leaders of, <laughs> of emergency medicine for someone to, you know, one day fill your shoes and or just be your protege. Hey, but, and by the way, I'm always looking, I'm doing lots of research in behavioral emergencies, and I'd love to have residents and students that have some interest in, in looking at behavioral emergencies. And they'll even get a slot in that national update in behavioral emergencies coming up in December in Scottsdale, Arizona. Well, great. For anyone liking warm weather, please do look up Dr. Zun. That's Z-U-N. <laughs> <laughs> and contact him. But any closing thoughts, Dr. Zun, on just psych or anything in particular? I, I always ask people, especially for psych, to if, if you would like to share your favorite um, psych patient story, that's also an option. But any closing thoughts? Well, that's interesting. I can go on about psychiatric patients, but I have an interesting case. Mm -hmm. So, and this kind of elicits a lot of other interesting uh, developments in the field. So I had a patient that came in out of control, manic. They decided uh, that she needed to be admitted. We put her back on her meds in the ED. She, because we didn't have a bed, she stayed, oh, I think she ended up staying two days in the ED. And on day two, she was feeling just fine. And said, you know what, you know, I think I can go home. I don't think I need to stay in the hospital. And we sent her home, which leads to another thing that we're seeing in the industry for psych patients is psych obs. The Sinai system just opened a crisis stabilization unit so that there's a lot of patients that just need some time to get back on their meds, to get through their crisis, to reconnect with their therapists and can probably be managed as an outpatient. But we in emergency medicine, and actually if you come to my talk a little, in maybe an hour or so, um, I'm going to be talking about suicide assessment. It's that same thing. Not every suicidal patient needs to be admitted to the hospital. Some patients, it's not appropriate. I'll give you another example. I took care of a teenager that took three ampicillin in front of her boyfriend so that because her boyfriend wanted to break up with her. Don't you think it'd be a disservice to admit that kid, that teen, into a psych unit, even an adolescent unit, who just used bad judgment and needs some counseling and maybe needs, you know, some outpatient therapy? So not every patient that says they want to kill themselves needs to be admitted to the hospital. We need better criteria for psych admissions. You know, we have criteria for CHF or pneumonia or you know, uh, other medical illnesses, but we don't have good criteria for psych. And the emergency docs tend to think, oh, we got to admit every psych patient that walks in the door because of the liability. So if we have better education and training, we'll see that 
just like other patients, we don't have to admit everybody that has pneumonia or has CHF, that some of those patients could either benefit by psych obs or actually go home. And maybe just restarting their meds will be enough to get them through that hump and get them back into the community. So I think there's a lot of changes on the horizon. And I think that we are usually pretty good as emergency physicians uh, picking up on all those new things that are coming up. And I think psych care is going to be changing. I think that whether we go willingly or kicking and screaming, there's going to be a new uh, paradigm to how to evaluate and treat those people. And we're going to have to get more involved in both the evaluation and the treatment and disposition and come to my conference, read my book, come do research with me. You'll get a start. These are very exciting times. And I, again, want to thank you not only for taking the time to sit down with us, but also for all the work you've done in emergency psychiatry and kind of going to bat for these patients who are otherwise largely unheard and, you know, taking up an advocacy that usually isn't. So thank you for that. And again, always for sitting down with us. Thank you, Amy. It's been a pleasure. And I'll look forward to you coming back and visiting us at Sinai. Always. Thank you so much. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine Resident and Student Association. For more information about RSA, please visit our website, www.aaemrsa.org. Listen to all podcasts in this series and explore the ways you can get involved with RSA. Join us again next episode for another topic of importance for emergency medicine residents and students.